After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Since graduating from the Trinity College of Music and Drama in 1979, Mike Dixon has built up one of the most varied careers in entertainment. First working on the 1980s nationwide tour of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. By the end of the decade, Mike was put forward as musical director on the 1989 Royal Variety performance, a role in which he is honoured many times. Throughout the 90s, he became an MD on a number of light entertainment shows for LWT, including An Audience With and The Shane Ritchie Experience, to name but a few. Then in 2005, Mike began a five-year stint as musical arranger to Dame Shirley Bassey, which climaxed him in gracing the Pyramid stage at the Glastonbury Festival in 2007. After Shirley Bassey, Mike returned to his first love, musical theatre, when he provided the music to the stage production of Mrs. Henderson Presents. I caught up with a West End maestro to talk theatre, television, and of course music. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Dixon. Okay, so uh, you graduated from Trinity College of Music and Drama in 1979. Nowadays, music and drama courses are a, sta- uh, a staple of most universities, but what made you opt to do something which would have been so revolutionary at its time? Well, well I, yeah, I left Trinity College of... It was only Trinity College of Music when I was there, and, and my course was from 1975 to 1979. And whilst I was there, I, I was also working... Um, for the London College of Dance and Drama and playing for dance classes. And I was also working with a group called the Fulham Music Theatre. And they were doing Amdram productions, Amdram shows. But I was working brilliantly with one of the directors at English National Opera, because he was one of their direct one of their directors. I got introduced to an amazing singing teacher called Ian Adam. And Ian Adam um, was teaching all sorts of extraordinary people like um, Michael Crawford, um, um, Terence Stamp, bizarrely, was going there for singing lessons, all sorts of amazing people, lots of West End Wendy's and West End Lovelies as well. But I got to play for Ian Adam whilst I was at college and at the end, just as I was leaving college as well, which got me to know a lot of these strange and weird and wonderful actors and actresses and made me realise that actually I could work with those kind of people. They're okay, I can deal with that. So, um, so Trinity was Trinity was great in in so many ways because it gave me a good grounding in the, the classical side of stuff. But I also had a fantastic piano teacher who allowed me to experiment and do sort of the more um, jazzy, rocky, poppy sort of stuff, and was encouraging me to do other things, you know, things other than the, 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 the normal trying to play Chopin and, and things like that. So I was totally 
um, encouraged to go down this other sort of what we used to call light music back in the day, light music route. And it's just given me such a, a good overall grounding. From I had a great teacher at school as well, a guy called Trev Farrow, who was, who was totally eclectic in his musical taste. So all through my life, I've been encouraged to, to take every single type of music that you possibly can. And that's, it's been so good because it means that I can stand up in front of an orchestra and conduct a, a, a jazzy something, or I can stand up and conduct Nimrod, you know. So I've, it's just been such a great grounding all the way through. That was a really long answer to that question. <laughs> that's all right. Excellent. Okay. Uh, in 1989, you made your debut as musical production crew on the Royal Variety Performance. Since then, you've been musical director on numerous occasions. How significant has this been in shaping the rest of your career? Well, I think it was interesting. 1989, I was doing um, a show called Aspects of Love for Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I was musical director for that show. And I got a phone call to say, we're doing um, a 20-minute a, a, a 20, 20 segment of Andrew's stuff for the Royal Variety Show, and Andrew would like you to be his representative uh, you know, there to make sure that musically everything works okay. So I went along, it was back in the days when the Royal Variety was always at the Palladium. And uh, I had already been to the Palladium because I'd already been um, associate conductor of a show called La Cage au Fol, which ran at the Palladium back in 87, somewhere, 86, 87. Um, and was a big successful show that came over from Broadway. So I knew lots of people at the plate. So when I walked into the Palladium, I recognised people, you know, backstage that I knew, chatted to them, got introduced to the, the the BBC people. No, it was ITV, the ITV people that I needed to sort of, you know, um, speak with. I'd already spoken to the great and wonderful Alan Ainsworth, who was the musical director for so many royal varieties over the years, I mean, hundreds and hundreds. Uh, and he was um, the musical director for um, the whole of the 1989 one. In fact, he conducted that the, the segment and I was having to sort of talk gently, talk him through how, you know, how certain parts of our little 15 minutes were going to go. So that was quite interesting. I was, you know, in homage to the great Alan Ainsworth, um, Anyway, that, that whole event um, sort of got, got me, I, I, it was lovely to, to just be part of some, this extraordinary show, you know, that, that, that for years and years growing up was one of the sort of staple main TV shows every year, you know, and there I am, you know, with a little credit on the, you know, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber segment, musical supervisor Mike Dixon. It was like, wow, that's that's me. Anyway, two years later, I was asked um, by the same group of people to be sort of number two music music person on the show, and I, so that I, I was a musical associate on that one, and I did a couple of the charts. I did. Um, Beverly Craven sang Promise Me, so I did that, I think that. I rehearsed all the stuff with Eric Idle and um, when he sang um, uh, A Bright Side of Life, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, and we had um, 
hundreds and hundreds of people on stage for that whole segment, including the Dagenham Girl Pipers, the Tiller Girls, some sumo wrestlers. Um, um, it was just complete madness. It was one of those extraordinary, extraordinary things. Anyway, yeah, I, so I rehearsed that, which was amazing. And then for the show itself, and this is a, a sometimes with the Royal, mostly with the Royal, the band is just in the pit. The orchestra's in the pit. On this particular one, the orchestra, because we were at the Victoria Palace in 91, the orchestra was underneath the stage and not visible to the audience in any way, shape or form. So a man called John Cameron was the musical director and conducting that. Um, so I was kind of working with him, but he had no direct communication to the stage. So it was all done remotely, all done via television cameras and mic you know, microphones and all that sort of thing. The full orchestra was there in front of him and the backing vocalist too. And I'd done some rehearsing with some of the people on stage. And I was also sort of liaising with the stage. If, if John couldn't hear anything, then I was having to dash, you know, round and, and, and I was much younger then, so I could dash. And, uh, and it, was, it was really fascinating because the other thing that I did was I made sure that I stood near where John was as much as possible but I also had full-on open cans from the truck. In other words, I had the director and all the people in the control room on open cans, so I could hear everything that they were saying in the control room. So I was kind of, it was that thing of trying to be a half step ahead so you know what's coming up in a, in a very tight rehearsal rehearsal schedule, in which is what the, the Royal Variety tends to be. It's all done over a two days, you know. Bosh, you have a band call on the one morning, the afternoon you start rehearsing some of the some of the turns and you work through the evening. The next day it's a, another rehearsal in the morning, then a dress rehearsal in the afternoon and then the show. That's it's it. like Just mad. two days. Yeah, yeah. Bosh. Wow. Done. Well that's what it frequently has been. I mean it's really, really high 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 energy and high stress, you know, sort of scenario. Anyway, um Again, this is a very long answer to a short question, but that I'm sure you don't mind. So basically, I stood beside John, heard everything that was going on. I could hear um, the director talking. I could hear the producers talking. I knew what was happening. Then two years later, when it went back to ITV, I, I think I'd already done some other bits and bobs for, for, for ITV or, or LWT. It was London Weekend Television. Um, by that point and I got asked to do the whole show the whole of the, the, the Royal Variety and that particular year 93 was the year when I was actually MD in Greece at the time as well so it was at the Dominion Theatre and we had Brian Connolly on it we had it was the famous one where Michael Barrymore did um, did the routine with the soldiers and I can never remember the name of the song that he did, but it was it was he did a full on routine with the soldiers having to mouth, you know, doing a marching up and down thing and, and, and holding holding guns. And uh, and uh, I can't remember the name of the song. Never mind. Moving on. Uh, we had um, uh, for rehearsals for that part of the show. The rehearsals actually were quite funny because we were in the old oval um, ITV rehearsal studios and we had uh, Michael and the, the choreographer Alan Harding 
and me, and I'm shouting to the to the to these soldiers, all carrying their full-on kit. I'm shouting to them to sort of mouth words because there's a couple of places where they have to mouth words. And Alan is is the the choreographer is shouting at them to 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 march this way and march that way and march the other way, and Barrymore brilliantly is just trying to work out how he's going to get in between everybody and make it funny, and sing the song. You know, um, it was a very very interesting little bit of an afternoon of rehearsals, I suppose. Because yeah, we do rehearse back in those days, you used to do maybe a couple of weeks of rehearsals with the dancers and things. So, so we had a, a little bit of time to actually rehearse that. Um, but that one, now this talking going back to the 1991, where the orchestra was completely under the stage and no communication at all, nobody could see the orchestra. This one, the orchestra was up on a raised platform at the back of the stage, except. The raised platform, which was part of the set for Greece, could only take 16 players. So I had to be up there with, and I had the rhythm section, so that's drums, bass, guitar, piano, up there. And I had some of the of the saxophone and trumpet and trombone section. In fact, I think I had all of them. Um, which meant that I had strings and harp and percussion and all the backing vocalists, and they had to go somewhere else in the building. So the singers were downstairs in a basement room. Okay, so that was eight eight backing vocalists downstairs in a separate room. The whole string section, harpist, percussion, were upstairs on the third floor at the Dominion Theatre in another room. So imagine the nightmare of the, and the sound people trying to fuse all that together, but also us and, and me getting information from the director and then having to communicate three buttons to talk to the whole orchestra and get everybody to, to, to know what was going on. And you're being shouted at to, you know, to, to, to move things on. So it's quite a high, you know, high stressy yeah. sort of thing. It was really fun. I, I, I mean, I, I always love that sort of being thrown to the wolves thing and 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 um and it, it it was it was exciting and 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 great fun ultimately um so there's one story that is worth recounting the queen is normally very very punctual and she's normally to the letter it's like we know that that right we need to to get um the national anthem ready because the queen is the queen's arrived she's exactly on time interval in the interval of the show proper, the show as recorded, so this is not uh, it, when the show is shown on the on the television. You don't you don't know, know where the interval has been because the show just runs as one whole show. But as an event, the show is in two halves, like a normal theatrical event. So there is a twenty minute interval. So in that twenty minute interval, I had some pre record pre-recorded music to that I had to record to go on that was going to be used for to go under some bits of video later for the when it was edited so so slightly complicated but the, that was the only time that that the musicians union would allow us to actually record that music so I had about five ten minutes of music to record so it was a case of okay we're ready to record 
And three, two, one. Here's the first first part, and we just and you have one go at it. So you record one bit. One of them was a little bit longer, so recorded that, recorded that, recorded that. Got to the end of this little recording session, thinking, right, I've got ten minutes before the Queen's coming back for Act Two. Okay, ten minutes. So I pressed the buttons, talked to the whole orchestra. Okay, so that's all that recording done. We have we have ten minutes. Back on the stand in 10 minutes, no more than 10 minutes, back up. I unpressed the buttons and in my ear from the directors, from the thing, the Queen's coming back early, Queen's coming back early. What? 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 Uh, sorry, press the buttons again. Any of you who haven't gone yet? Queen's coming back early, we need to go. Sorry, apologies, 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 but we have to go. So in front of me, I had uh, piano, bass, and drums. They hadn't had time to leave, so they were there. And basically, I, I, I recorded the on-track for Act 2, the, the mu little bit of music to bring everybody on for Act 2, with piano, bass, and drums, and I think there was one trumpet or something, and that was it. So, so, and then, fortunately, we then went into a section uh, from a musical called Forever Played, Plaid, Forever Plaid, which didn't involve our orchestra. So, so we just had to play that one little on track, and then there was, there was a, a bit of space when everybody outside who'd managed to get off the truck or managed to get down from upstairs realised that I had been calling them back. So they were frantically trying to come back. After the event, Nigel Lithgow was the director on this particular on this particular show. Nigel was was he was the one who'd been calling people back or let us know that the Queen was coming back. I saw him afterwards because we had a little conflab afterwards, and then there's usually a bit of a, a do and a and a and a, a dinner and all that sort of thing. Uh, and I saw, saw him after, and I, I, I told him my side of the story and how that was, you know, I was so embarrassed and, I, you know, I hope the entree, he said, oh, don't worry about that. He said, it's even worse than that. He said, we, I'd let the most of the cameras go. So we didn't actually film the first five minutes of the start of the, the second half. We didn't even film it. So, so, so they used for the show, for the actual transmission, they used for like five minutes. They used what was pre-recorded in the dress rehearsal. So it was the only thing they could do because they didn't have they, the cameras. Weren't he said Nigel was outside having a fag. Yeah. You know, everybody, every it was like every, it's everybody's interval, and the Queen decided to come back early. So that was a good one. That was also the um, that was also the year when Brian Connolly, uh, dear Brian, was told. That he wanted to make an entrance on this band truck, um, and the band truck was supposed to then come down onto the floor because it was on a on a, a big cantilever thing. Anyway, Brian was told um, that we can only have so many people on on this truck; can't have any more than that. Otherwise, the truck will stick. Will it will stop working? It will just stop. So we we'd done the rehearsal with, and there were, it was okay. There weren't too many people on. We came, we, and we. How was it? I think it was the first rehearsal was fine. Second rehearsal, the dress rehearsal, basically, we'd had to either we'd had to add one more musician or Brian had put somebody else up there on stage with him, up on this truck. They went to move the truck and it and it stopped. 
it it, it, had, it had reached its sort of safety safety limit. So Brian had to make a different entrance. Um, the show that the truck never got revealed uh, for the show proper, and we never, you know, it just didn't didn't happen. But sometimes, um, you know, something goes wrong. And you have advice. to make the best of it. Yeah. You have to make the best of it. So, yeah. So, Brian, dear Brian, was the one who stopped us from having um, a band truck that day. And Cilla, Cilla Black. Black host, and Cilla yeah. Black was the host. Yeah. Cilla Black was the host. And we sang um, You'll Never Walk Alone at the end. And then after I'd done that one in 93, I think they had a few years then where they decided, after all this thing of having the orchestra in so many places, they decided to use pre-recorded music. So there were a couple of years of pre-recorded music, and it, I didn't get asked to do it again until 2005. And I did That's it in quite a long period. Yeah, yeah. So I was doing other other things, you know, and, and getting involved in other things. and, and But I, I had... Yeah, so 93 to 2005 off. And then I did 2005, 2007, 2009. And I had a little bit to do with 2011 or was it 2013? I can't remember. But, um, but basically, that's my, that's my royal variety. Wow, thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, you've recently told The Stage mag Magazine that your job is 40% music and 60% diplomacy. What do you mean by that? I think, I still think that's probably right. It's about the communication with the artists that you're working with. You've got to try and make those people feel as confident as possible in what they're about to do. Um, so you've got to be able to handle some quite big stars. You've got to handle people on the way up. You've got to handle people on the way down. You've got to handle people who are in a very stressed situation. Even though you might be stressed yourself, you can't show that. You know, one of the most important things to do is to, to give a, an air of everything's okay. Everything's okay. And it's a bit like, you know how when you see a, a, a duck on water and it, or, or a swan on water and, it, and it's looking very serene, but underneath its legs are going like this. As a, as a musical director, that's kind of what you have to be at times because you have to be able to be really personable and gentle and nice and calming and relaxing. But inside, your heart is going, you know, going completely, because you know that there's only this limited amount of time to get this done in. Uh, and then you come to the show and the show is quite a stressful thing and there's 55 million things going on. But you just know that you've got to keep that so I suppose that's the the 60% diplomacy is the is the communication skills and the, would you say it's harder working with bigger stars than up and comers or harder no I, harder working with bigger stars I don't think it I think it's I think it's um, any any situation where where uh, uh, there's a lot of stress people will react in 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 strange you know, sometimes they'll feel like they're cornered. So you have to try and make them feel like they're as welcome and as, as um, able to do the job as possible. Um, and and I, I don't think it's a matter of big or little stars. I, I think, because I think in that situation, everybody, it, especially in a Royal Variety type, type situation, everybody has... I mean, they all have different types of nerves and they all have different types of ways of showing their nerves, but everybody's going to feel 
on a heightened plane because of the nature of the event. So it's just being able to deal with that. Okay, last year you teamed up with director Andrew Keats to campaign for the UK's first musical direction award. What made you feel so passionate about it? I think over the years, what, what I've noticed with both the Olivier's and, um, and the What's On Stage Awards is that there's a lot of people have no real understanding of the job that a musical director or a musical supervisor actually does. So you can see somebody waving their arms around or playing the piano and waving their arms around, but you don't have any knowledge of what has gone before. The, a choreographer, you might well be able to see that choreographer working with the the dancers and you can see the result of, of, of his or her work with those dancers in how the choreography is put together. You can hear what a musical director has done because you can hear, hear how well the orchestra sounds and you can hear how well the, the, the how good the singing is but there has never well for, for so many years there was never any um, recognition in the theatre industry of of what goes into being that musical director and I wanted to just to, to sort of put put my nose above the parapet to go, actually, it, we should be, if we're going to go give awards to sound designers, set designers, lighting designers, and the choreographers and the directors, then there's one person that's very, very important in that group of people that's missing, and that's the musical director. Yes, we, we acknowledge that there's a composer, frequently, and a, 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 and, a, and, a, and a lyric writer. But in musical theatre, the music is then altered and changed and made into something else by what the musical director and the musical director's team, including orchestrator, will actually do to that music. And so I was trying to point out um, respectfully to the rest of the industry that there is um, uh, an omission and I, I personally, uh, you know, as it's my my side of the, that industry, I felt it was quite a quite a glaring omission. And it's funny when I spoke to quite a few people about it, they were they were their reaction was, "What do you mean? There's no there's no award for musical director?" And you go, "Well, have a look at the Olivier's. Have you ever seen? Have a look at the list. There is no musical direction award, and there hasn't ever been." The Tonys on Broadway used to have a musical director award, stopped it. They now have an orchestrator award. What I managed to do ultimately on this sort of campaign, which I suppose has been going on for, or was going on for four or five years really, was two years ago now, um, maybe even three years ago, the Olivier's, after I'd lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and had quite a few meetings, they agreed to open a new award, which is an Outstanding Achievement in Music Award. It hasn't actually answered the, 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 the question properly, to my mind, but at least it's a start. But um, another group of people um, who are called My Theatre Mates, and they run a new award system, 
Um, they have started uh, a musical direction award, which I'm really pleased about. Uh, and also the Off West End uh, Awards called the Offies, as of this uh, 2016, they started a new award after I'd spoken to them and I went and had a meeting and all the rest of it. They started a new musical director award for the, the Offies, they're called the Off West End Awards. And I am the patron saint of the... That's what they call the, the sponsor, if you like, of the of the musical director award for for that. So, in actual fact, in a couple of weeks' time, um, the winner of um, the award, uh, I think last year or is it this year? It might even be twenty. Oh, I think it re- he got the award this year, but it relates to twenty sixteen. Um, a guy called Jordan Lee. Um, I'm meeting him. Uh, in fact, he's coming to some rehearsals that I'm doing for Radio Two. So, so as patron saint, I you know he's won the award, so I want to show him what things go on, you know. So yeah, so that's kind of why I, I, I over the years, I mean, some people have have, have given me a bit of um, a bit of a hard time, and and you know I had a couple of very unpleasant letters from the people who were running the What's on Stage awards. In fact, they even blocked me on Twitter for a while. Which I, I, because of this whole business with the, the musical director award, which was all a bit unpleasant, but it some so some people were you know they accuse me of of um, it's all about it's all about me getting an award, which is completely you know it, it's the it's not about me getting the award, it's about people who are in the same position having the opportunity to have to to be to get that that. That little gong from from in the industry where and it's like well what is it one of the one of the great lines was um, so what is it about musical if you take if you take the music out of musicals what do you get ALS that's what you get don't you you get ALS so you get ALS you that's all you get take the music out of musicals that's all you get so it's like I think it was quite interesting people just had no idea that 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 there was this um, omission. I can't believe there hasn't been an award for it. Mm. When you think about it, the mm. work that goes into it in yeah. film, yeah. television, theater. Yeah, well, fil- film and television was slightly different because on, on the, the Oscars, there's always, there was a, a best music for a movie. Mm-hmm. So the composer of the best music would get an award and there would be, a, there'd be there's still a, a, you know, a best song. So there is, there is that. Um, but no musical direction. But no musical, no, no, no. no. No, but then again, in, in movies, there's a director award, and the director kind of is take, oh, takes the whole thing for. I think, and in, in a way, kind of less worried about it for the the Oscars. It's, I mean, I know nowadays there are more musicals in in um, in film, but it's basically about the fact that there's a whole genre in theatre that is referred to as musical theatre, yeah. and the linchpin of musical theatre is the musical director. Working with the director, choreographer, da, 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 on, on the you know the whole show. Anyway, that was my thing. Great. That was another short answer, <laughs> wasn't it? Sorry. In 2015, you directed the Christmas special of BBC Radio 2's Friday Night is Music Night. How different is it doing the Christmas special, uh, Christmas edition, compared to the regular edition? A Christmas Radio 2 Friday Night is Music Night is fun. 
And uh, the one that I did in 2015 was with uh, Michael Xavier and, and um, Summer Strallen uh, singing some a few Christmas tunes. Um, I suppose that there's a little bit of letting hair down on the on the Christmas special because because you know you have a bit of tinsel and and um, and, and and well everybody likes a Christmas song everybody likes a Christmas carol don't they so I know we had um, we did have a nice time putting that little show together uh, the great thing about all those Friday nights music nights is that it's a little bit like a raw variety show sometimes when you've got a whole group of people to, to sort of fit in and slot in very quickly. But it's it's the thing of it's a one-off event and it only ever happens once. You might get it, you know, you might be able to see it or hear it again, but essentially it is, it's a one-off performance. And that's quite an attractive proposition. That's, that's challenging, but also quite attractive. And there have been quite a few of those type events that I've done where the only time we've actually done a complete run through is the recording because even the dress rehearsal you've not done the, everything so because so there hasn't been time to go through absolutely everything so the only time you go through the whole thing so D-Day the D-Day thing we did at, at the Albert Hall um, 70 years since D-Day uh, we had various actors reading things and um, Patrick Stewart and all sorts of amazing people reading, reading. Um, um, Patrick was actually reading stuff that Winston Churchill had said. It, we'd had enough time, we'd rehearsed all the music and I had to time some of the music to how they were speaking things. Um, but in the afternoon, We'd had quite a few problems with the sound scenario, so things are backed up, and we just hadn't had time. So that show, which was filmed as well as recorded, uh, went out on BBC Red Button as well as um, the radio. That show only ever existed on that very. We hadn't we hadn't had time to go through everything, so quite a lot, about a third of the show. Was was complete winging it from everybody, where where I, I was listening to what the actors were saying. They hadn't had time to. We just yeah, just hadn't been time to to go through everything. So that's a one-off event. Excellent. Proper, scary. Thank you, Lady. <laughs> uh, without wanting to sound like the great Parky interviewing Tarvak, we have a mutual friend who also works on Friday night is music night. Do you ever find yourself working with the great Colin Edmonds? The great Colin Edmonds. What a lovely, lovely man. Colin, Colin and I have, have had the, 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 the fortune to work together on a couple of ITV things over the years. And I think our paths have crossed on Friday night is music night um, a f couple of times, but not enough because I really like Colin and, and he's, he's, he's such a lovely writer and such a... Um, a witty, uh, warm, and lovely man to have around, and he also he writes um, he writes exactly how whoever it is he's 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 you know giving the words to he writes as if he's them. Some people write, and it's it's like, but this is this this is the best thing you've got to say. Say this, you know, say this. Colin Colin writes 
very much to he cuts his cloth exactly to 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 the, the the people that he's working with and he's always been brilliant at that he's also a very good novelist and i think his second novel is shortly out his first book i think it's called steam smoke and mirrors <laughs> i should know i've read it i've read it i've got it on my iphone i've got it on my anyway uh his second book is coming out and it's part of his his steampunk um Colin is somebody you look at and you would never in a million years think that he would write in the genre steampunk. You know, he looks like a just a, a regular guy, you know, wearing cardigans. You know, <laughs> he just doesn't look like a steampunk connoisseur. And there he is. Extraordinary. Excellent. Okay, for this, you worked with the legendary producer Alan Boyd. Can you give us an insight into working with a legend of the industry? Alan Boyd, old Boydie. Um, Alan, Alan did Friday Night for a long time and then became um, Wogan's right-hand man for many, many years and um, on, the, on Wogan's radio show. And uh, Alan, Alan is a past master at putting together about two or three singers putting together a, 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 an hour and a half show that has a real flow, different different styles of music. Every show that he would put together, the, the, the music would, he wouldn't use the same thing. It would all be different. But he was always able to make a, 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 a put a stamp, an Alan Boyd stamp on a Friday night, his music night. He was just really clever at, at doing that he also could probably drink anybody that i know under the table it's absolutely extraordinary extraordinary and you might you know you might bump into him if you're wandering around broadcasting house um late on late on a on a wednesday afternoon or something you might you might find him in a little italian restaurant quaffing a, a nice a nice bottle of chianti or something <laughs> But an absolute legend and a lovely, lovely man. Okay. Uh, last year, you finished a mammoth stint on the hit musical Mrs. Henderson Presents. I suppose part of the story resonates with your career. How did you feel when it came to an end? Well, Mrs. Henderson Presents was a bit of a labour of love, beautifully written uh, new musical based on the windmill the Windmill Theatre and all that the Windmill Theatre was about. Mrs. Henderson basically ran the Windmill Theatre, uh, bought the Windmill Theatre, and this extraordinary man, Vivian Van Dam, then put together these sets of shows. Uh, we did uh, a, a show based on the movie from 2006. George Fenton and Simon Chamberlain wrote the music. Terry Johnson wrote the book all based on that movie, which was in turn based on the reality. Um, and we, it, it, it was such a lovely show to put together. I, I, you know, one of the things that you have to address is the fact that The Windmill was about having naked ladies on stage. And, and the whole premise of, of, it was the end of the, um, end of the 30s when Mrs. Henderson went, went to the Lord Chamberlain and said that this is what she wanted to do. And he said, it cannot be, you can't, can't put Nate, you know, nude, nude, nude women on stage cannot possibly be in, in this, you know, in this, it can't be. And she 
got it got him to agree that if they stood still and were like statues it would be like going to the national gallery It'd be the same as going to the national gallery be, so they would be standing standing as still as statues famously then in the war in the second world war it became the go-to place because all the guys would come back from from being you know on the front or or, or whatever and the place they'd want to go would be the windmill theater because they'd have a few laughs from a few comics and a bit of this you know and and and, and some jokes and all that and then they'd get to see some naked girlies as well so it was hugely and they used to do things like and it's true that they, they this did happen they they'd occasionally secrete a mouse you know and throw a mouse up on the stage and see what happened then because if the girls jumped and r r ran around you know they'd get in, in all sorts of trouble but it would be good because then you get to see you know a little bit more shall we say <laughs> in the nicest in the nicest way anyway the women so the women was fast it was fascinating for so many reasons there's a lovely little story my wife her god mother's husband now in his 90s when we 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 said uh, natalie actually said uh that i was doing this show and it was all about the windmill he said oh it just suddenly his head went into into an extraordinary place he went the windmill he said all the way i was 14 through the or 15 or whatever it was through the at the big when when it became the windmill theater and I, it was my ambition to go it was, yeah, because it was the only time you did, didn't see. There was no page three in the sun. There was no, you know, top shelf. There was none of them. That was like the only place you could see naked women, naked flesh. And, he's, and my wife, Natalie, said, so did, did you manage to go then? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, yes. And it's still one of the highlights of my life going there. You know, so this is a man now in his late 80s, early 90s yeah, going, on about, going on about the windmill. And some of some of the uh, some of the late some of the girls who were still there when the show when the uh, windmill theatre itself closed, um, and some of the girls who were there in the fifties, actually came to our show, to to sort of to to see our actors and our our people doing it, and and it was great. So Mrs. Henderson, it was. It was great fun to put on, great fun to be involved with a, you know, and I always like doing new, I've been lucky. I always seem to do new musicals, not, not you know, not, not um, oh, this has just come from Broadway. or blah, blah, blah. I, I, Doing a show from the very beginning is always the best way. And, and you know, Mrs. Henderson, it's one of those shows where it, it, had, it had critical acclaim, but didn't quite grab the attention of the public so it didn't last as long as it should have done but it's a it, it, it's a good little piece really good little british musical okay uh in the 1990s uh saw a surprise re-emergence of the great light entertainment shows of the 60s and the 70s thanks to itv's an audience with you became musical director on a number of these shows what do you think is the secret to its success? An audience with, that's, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I did four or five of those over the, over the uh, I, I did Jimmy Tarbucks, I did Joan Rivers, I did Shirley's, maybe I did three. Did I do another one? Doesn't matter. Whatever, I, I, I did a few. <laughs> I did a few audience with. 
but Shirley Bassey's was the first. No, Shirley Bassey's was not the first one I did. I did the Jimmy Talbot one a few years before. And and for Jimmy's, he, he had a band that he wanted to play um, Johnny Be Good. And the band that we booked was um, Rick Wakeman on keyboards, uh, John Lord from the, the Moody Blues on bass, Hank Marvin on guitar, um, and I think it was Kenny... How was it on drums? From the, the the new faces, the drummer from the new faces, and I was musical director. So I so basically I had a load of rock legends to go and say, right, are you doing Johnny Be Good? Uh, um, he wants to sing it in this key. <laughs> Off you go. Off you go. Sing. Yeah, play Johnny Be Good. So that's kind of what happened. It was that was um, a bit of a weird one with a load of you know amazing rock legends. Um, that but Shirley ba- the Shirley Bassey one was 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 really good it was the second one that she'd done and uh and there was one little moment where there was a a, an earring that kept falling off we kept on having to stop because this earring fell off and the continuity was then completely buggered up and uh uh, and and in the end i think we we, because she tried this song three times and every time she did some some shake of the head and the earring went i think they either taped it on or we just they, we just just carried on and, and 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 you know it was all right. The Joan Rivers one was um, was quite bizarre because she just basically um, we played her on, and then she referred to us a couple of times and and, and made a joke about the fact that we were we were playing in front of a mirror because it made us look like we were double the size. You know, not personally. I mean, that's the band double the size. You know, so look like more players, um, and then basically told as many jokes as. I mean, she was amazing. She was amazing. She was told not to use the the f word. I do remember that. She was told not now, don't use the f word until at least I think it was five minutes into the show. Don't 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 use the f word. So to be fair. I don't think she did use the F word, but she used the C word within the first two minutes. <laughs> oh dear. Um, but the, an audience with is such a great opportunity for one artist to, to really show what they can do. I've just remembered another one that I did, Lionel Richie. We did a, a, a one-off special, a live one for Lionel Richie, which was quite, quite exciting. So, so live band on stage went out. Normally they're recorded. This one was a, a, a live one. So Lionel was the, the the questions and all the rest of it had no chance to be edited. It was it possibly would have been better if it had been edited because it needs to be tightened tightened up. But it was still it was a good thing to do. Um, but I think it's it's a great exhibition for for a, an artist to show how they. Well, it, it, you know, some of it is, you know, manufactured to the questions, but but frequently they'll expose something that they weren't necessarily intending to expose. They'll they'll, they'll let something slip that just shows them to be as frail as anybody else. Just just occasionally. I mean, Kenneth, there was a fantastic audience with with Kenneth Williams, where he was on tip top absolutely unbelievable form 
and I think that 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 gave him. It, it was. I just I remember that one distinctly. I, I sadly wasn't on it, but um, I remember it distinctly being so illuminating as to really how the man was. Even though it was about him performing, and he was performing, there it 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 showed a couple of little moments of 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 just a chink through the armour, which was really good. But I think the whole the concept of an audience with. Is such a good idea, and I, I I don't think they're doing it anymore. But you never know; it might come back. Uh, apart from being a light entertainment musical director, you've also written a number of TV theme tunes. What is the secret to a successful theme tune? Oh, I wish I'd had a really successful theme tune. I've done a few Royal Variety theme tunes. Did Brian Connolly series. Uh, you, there, there was a point where, where I, I it, it, oh, I think I did a comedy awards as well, um, a British comedy awards set of themes as well, but I, I, the, the, I always find that that you find the best thing to do with a, a, a theme is to is to imagine is to imagine the, the the tune based on the title, so for example. And I didn't write this, but but if you think of um, the cop series, the Sweeney, that that theme tune goes ba da da ba da da. So it goes the Sweeney, the Sweeney, and it just helps in identifying the the the, the um, you know the title of the show. Royal Variety Show is quite difficult in that respect because it's it's a bit of a mouthful. So I think I I, I think a couple of the, the the tunes I did for Royal Variety shows were just kind of generic, just just a, 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 a the idea of that tune is to give a, a to give a, 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 a real idea of what the show is going to be. So it's light, it's bubbly, it's sing alongy, that kind of thing. I suppose it's difficult to say. Because I mean, you know, the, the 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 greatest of all the, the the theme tune writers is probably Tony Hatch. And and Tony Hatch is, you know, from from Neighbours right to, to um, uh, from Neighbours right through to Crossroads, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of shows in between. Absolutely amazing. In recent years, television entertainment has changed dramatically. The infamous BBC Television Centre closed its doors in 2013. BBC Broadcasting House is now being used to house programmes like The One Show, with the rest of the BBC has fled to Salford. Reflecting upon your light entertainment work during the 90s, what impact has the closure of Television Centre had on the output of British entertainment? Dear old um, television centre, that iconic building in in White City, with that big circular circular building and all the studios around the outside of those those sets of offices. Um, TC One, which is the big studio, television centre one. All the studios had just had the TC on the front. Um, I wonder why. What a good idea that is. TC1, TC2. Where's that going to be then? Oh, it could be Television Centre. Anyway, Television Centre. All sorts of things were filmed there. 
over the, the through the sixties and seventies, including you know Doctor Who's loads of, 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 of light entertainment shows, hundreds upon hundreds of shows and amazing people went through the doors of Television Centre, and it is so sad that they finally decided to close it down in twenty thirteen. I believe they've opened or they're opening a part of it as a sort of bit of legacy. The rest of it, I think, they're going to make into or have made into flats, apartments. But it, I suppose, there is an argument to say it's you know a sign of the times that things have to move on, and that sort of having a huge hub area where everything happens is no longer um, viable. But I, I, I just wonder if the BBC is sort of scored an own goal by doing that and and everything you know the, the Salford thing um, um, centre which is lovely and there's some great things up there recording the one show at, at Broadcasting House the old um, radio building with its new bit and then and then of course the EastEnders and Strictly Come Dancing which are filmed at Elstree BBC Elstree I mean, in if strictly was if strictly was happening in the seventies, strictly would have been in TC One, in that huge, lovely studio TC One. Um, I did manage to work there a few times, and and um, what was great about Television Centre was that you'd go from your rehearsal in your in your studio, and you'd walk around this circular um, area outside. Um, and, and you'd bump into, you know, somebody recording a game show, somebody else recording a drama, other people. You'd bump into all sorts of extraordinary people. So allied to TV Centre was this uh, amazing rehearsal room at Queen's Park. And to, to, if you do a rehearsal there, then you go down to Television Centre. And I remember being up at the Queen's Park rehearsal rooms and I can't remember what I was rehearsing, but walking down a corridor and into a lift with Lena Zavaroni and, and Ernie Wise. Where else could that possibly happen? Nowhere else in the world. Extraordinary. Okay, you also run masterclasses for potential musicians. In your opinion, how important do you see this role in ensuring the future of musical entertainment? It's... I think there's a there's a, a really good group of young musical directors now, sort of in the in the ascendancy coming up. Not many um, have had the opportunity of working in television yet. There are a lot of uh, I was talking earlier about the these Offies Awards and this. There are two or three of these young up and up and coming musical directors, one of whom, actually not the one who won this year, but the one who I saw last year working on something, I've, I've managed to um, suggest him for a show that I'm involved in, which is um, Greece. And Greece is now out on tour. And and this lovely, lovely young chap is um, assistant musical director on this tour of, of Greece. So Josh, his name Josh, Josh Snood. And um, he's one of this sort of group of young up-and-coming people. I think it's humongously important that that we don't just get used to playing backtracks. It's humongously important that we have a situation where, even if it's just a four-piece band, I mean, if it can be a 40-piece, how brilliant, because 
it's going to sound better if it's 40 players than if it's four players. But if it can only be four players, at least make it four players and not a tape recorder or not a digital whatever. At least try and make music um, go along with the flow of the... the, the, the the flow of the action in the show at least make it rather than it just stagnates as being this is the this is the recorded music it can't change it has to be exactly the same every night it has to be you know, and in a light entertainment scenario you will get a different reaction from a singer or a group of singers working with a live band than if they're just standing there with a backing track they'll vibe off the live band. You only have to watch, you know, something like the Jules Holland show and just see how how people get off on really playing along with and singing with a big old live band. Okay, and uh, what's next for Mike Dixon? Well, I've just finished doing a very very big job. Uh, I've just finished doing being musical music director. Slightly different title, music director as opposed to musical director for the opening and closing ceremonies for um, the fourth Islamic Solidarity Games. So I've uh, over the last uh, 15 months over the last 15 months I've been working on with a, a completely international team an Australian artistic director an American choreographer a Greek designer an English designer um, uh, British producers, Mexicans, Italians, hundreds of amazing, extraordinary creative people um, making these two huge ceremonies that happened in Baku back in May 2017. And were obviously televised in, in, in the, the Islamic world. Um, but big, big events, you know, a, a little bit like, like doing, um, doing, doing, you know, the Olympic opening ceremony. That, that kind of scale of, of event with thousands of people on stage uh, and lots and lots of different segments. You know, you have a, 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 an artistic brief to, to tell a particular story. So I've just finished doing that. And and it, it, right now I'm in the middle of some concerts. Uh, I'm, in, I'm doing the 50th anniversary or since the repeal of the homosexual law in 1967 so there is a celebration uh, up in the city of culture hull on july the 29th and various um, various people are singing and we've got a small band uh, and i'm playing along uh, with i'm a musical director for that we're doing um, we're doing some fun things i think mark Arman's singing alison boyer will young uh, wonderful tom robinson from who does two four six eight motorway and the great the, the anthem glad to be gay, so so I'm doing that. It's great, uh, and then I go to Holland for uh, a few days to do some gigs, and then I've got Miss World uh, in China in October November. Uh, very busy. <laughs> yeah. You thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much to our guests for being the subject to another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything that takes your fancy. 
Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.